welcome to episode five of Wow. Well, that was my first time watching that intro all the way through. I hope you guys enjoyed that as much as I did. Welcome to episode six of the Not A Real Veteran podcast. We are super excited. We've got a great show for you guys today with Roy Martin out of Wisconsin. He is running for State Assembly District 6. You're going to meet him in just a moment. But first things first, of course, we got to make our money to keep paying for this show. So let me start with some ad reads. Most importantly, the Tennessee Radical Caucus. The Radical Caucus is awesome. They're pure. They're about radical, extreme libertarian ideas. Uh, they're kind of about as close to anarchists as you can get as far as the caucus goes. So definitely give them a look up in Tennessee. Like and follow their pages. Uh, you will not go wrong with Radcock people. And we've got Tom for 52.com. Thomas Queter for State Senate in New York. He's an awesome guy. He always has incredibly smart things to say. He's extremely thoughtful. Um, I think he would be an exceptional senator. He's got my full endorsement, and I hope you guys look him up and donate to his campaign. Some serious big news out of the libertarian world this week because the Royal Green by Jack Casey has finally released the third book of the series, Crowned by Gold. We've been waiting a long time, and here it is, ladies and gentlemen, this beautiful cover with this torch. Hey, very libertarian, very libertarian book cover, so please – Look up Jack Casey, theroyalgreen.com. You can get it on Kindle. You can get it from Amazon in paperback if you want. And he now has all three books out, so the story is complete. And that is all I've got for ad reads. So now I'll bring on my co-host, Mr. Braxton Voorhees. Hey, what's up? Hey, what's up? Not much, man. How's life been for you this week? It's been all right, man. It's been a week. Staying busy, try not to get too aggravated about Joe Biden looking at his watch while we unload military caskets. Yeah. Yeah. So Braxton had a post on the Libertarian Veteran Caucus yesterday. If you guys didn't get to check it out, uh, it was really heartfelt, really awesome. It's getting a lot of traffic, so check that out on the Veteran Caucus if you haven't. Um, but yeah, absolutely terrible that our, our commander-in-chief can't even pay respects to dead soldiers coming back from Afghanistan. Um like you said in the post, it's a dog and pony show, but he can't even hold his hand over his heart. He can't even hold character for that long. Well, yeah, that that's my entire uh, problem with it is that, like, you know, we don't expect him to care, but we expect him to pretend to care just because that's the precedent. You know, I mean, that's his end of it. You know, we, everybody knows he doesn't really care, but he couldn't be bothered to pretend to care. So, Exactly. It's like an extra low level of lack of empathy. Mm. Just shows that he doesn't respect the sacrifice whatsoever. Well, without further ado, guys, you guys aren't here to hear me and Braxton. You're here to hear Mr. Roy Martin, so we're going to bring him on. What's going on, Roy? Hey, how are you guys doing? Doing very well. So let's uh, let's start by talking about your name here, the Mohican Libertarian. Tell us a little bit about that. I'm a member of the Stockbridge Muncie Tribe, Band of Mohicans. Uh, we were originally from New York, and uh, through a series of forced removals under, you know, the Indian Removal Act, we got moved uh, through Canada to Ohio. Down, some of us went through Kansas, but we all ended up in Wisconsin uh, at a place called Stockbridge, Wisconsin. Uh, we were there. For a while and we got moved again uh to the present location we're at and we've been in this location now for about 85 years so uh we're hoping that we never get forcibly moved again Amen. yeah we'll definitely we'll definitely be there up in arms if that ever ever becomes a possibility but uh that's terrible man but uh Interesting. I've, I've, I've seen the movie, of course, you know, with Daniel Day-Lewis. It's a classic. But uh, how historically accurate is that? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's Hollywood. Yeah, well, well you know, when they can't even get uh, – I won't even comment on that. It, you, you know, it's just a movie. It's just a movie. Fair. Obviously, it wasn't the last of them. <laughs> yeah, obviously, it wasn't the last of them. So now you have a standing Mohican here in front of you guys. So – so what's the what's the proper term for the tribe since you said you had to get permission to use that name? 
um, well, we're the Stockbridge Muncie tribe, a band of the Mohicans. Uh, huh. But I went and asked that some of the elders around and stuff to make sure that everybody was okay with me using that. Uh, um, well, we, are, we have a casino and it's the Mohican North Star Casino. So they, you know, have that. We're using the name. It's just, you know, I wanted to make sure nobody would be offended by me labeling myself as a Mohican. I mean, our veterans group is called the Mohican Veterans. So I guess the uh, Mohican Libertarian fits right in with that. It's awesome, man. I think that should be a really successful brand for you. It's it's unique. Uh, it's historical. And I mean, who to better understand the fight for liberty than Native American tribes, right? Yes. Uh, my grandfather uh, was in the army. He was a prisoner of war during the Korean War. He spent three years as a prisoner of war. He came home from there uh, and was put in a uh, internment camp when he got back to reacclimate him to society. Um, before, and after he was released, he was initially denied veterans benefits because they said he wasn't a citizen. He was an Indian. Because uh, and then my father served in Vietnam. Uh, he got a Purple Heart and a Bronze Star. Uh, so my family has a long history, uh, great aunts and uncles too, that all serve We're our tribe has a, a history of standing up with the Americans ever since they, they landed. <laughs> um, we've always been there. We're a Christian tribes. Uh, so we've always wanted to believe in this system, this document that is, modeled after you know the uh the natives uh had influence back then in how this the setup of our constitution reads today huh. um, the uh tribes uh, how do you explain that uh there were five tribes that all worked together as one. Uh, the Senecas and the Onondagas, uh, the Mohawks, um, and they worked where the furthest ones out kind of acted like the way our, our House of Representatives works today. And oh. then the two closer ones, they acted more like the Senate. And in the center was the fire keepers, and that was you know, like where the central government was and everybody came together there. Um, so we believe in this, everybody uh, personal accountability type thing, you know, but at the same time, you help your neighbors, you know. Uh, it's more community-based. Yeah. yeah, makes perfect sense. I never, I've never heard that before. I never had known that at all. Uh, the tribes would spread out, you know, and uh, they found that like around 500 was a, a good size for a village to be because anything over 500, then a village, they couldn't get a consensus. There were too many people uh, and too many competing ideas for that region and, and resources that they competed over. And, and then when somebody was in distress, you pretty well knew these people. So you wanted to help them with your charity because it's not like you were sending your stuff away to people who didn't help you you isn't there to help you uh you have no idea who they are they just want your stuff mm. sure i read that in a book one time i think it was the righteous mind by jonathan height but he talked about how the perfect size for any community and this is research-based was like 200 to 500 people for exactly what you just mentioned it's a small enough community so that everybody knows everybody so essentially you know if somebody kills somebody they're going to be able to go back and everyone's going to be able to kind of put the pieces together. Um, but it goes to a lot of other reasons, charity, you know, the families knowing each other, all those things. It's just a really um, good number to be able to balance out those resources. Yeah. If you got stuff stolen from you, it's easy enough to see who all of a sudden has something that didn't have it. Sure. Or <laughs> so they can't explain how they came about that. I mean, it's pretty obvious. So small communities to me, I like that better. I live in a small town of just over 500 here. Our school wow. is small enough that uh, 
everybody, like I said, everybody knows everybody. When my son walks home from school, he's got to walk past all these people that I went to school with. So they all know who he is. You know, mm -hmm. he's causing trouble. I'm going to get a phone call before he gets home. That's no fun. I'm glad I didn't grow up in a town that small, to be honest with you for that, for that regard. But that's a good, that's a good argument just for localism and libertarianism. You know, we, we need, it's okay to live in big places, but we need to have our systems smaller so that we can manage them so that we can keep track of everybody and have tight communities. I think that that makes perfect sense. Well, local government, uh, because people in a, in these smaller groups, like I said, they, they generally have similar ideas and opinions on things and they want things a similar way. Um, which out here in the Northwoods in Wisconsin, how we want to teach our kids things is a lot different than someone in, in California or New York. Uh, what does uh, uh, someone, a politician from New York City isn't going to be teaching their kids ag type stuff that we have here? You know, they don't know how to, sure. they don't need to know how to milk a cow. <laughs> sure. And there's even a big difference probably between you and people in Madison. You know, it's like the smaller you have, the better it represents you and your beliefs and what you guys need. Except for when you're talking about these native tribes, we didn't get to choose where we were placed in this particular county. We were we were forced here. So hmm. um, we kind of feel out of place, uh, at least in my opinion, because they don't represent us, uh, especially when it comes to law enforcement. Uh, our county in 2019 it was 9% indigenous, but 31% uh, of the arrests for cannabis were natives. And in our jail system right now, sitting in the county jails, there are 50% are natives sitting there in those jails. Wow. And even though our county is 36th ranked in Wisconsin in, in size, we have the 16th most prison population in the state uh and we're one of only three counties that have two jails <laughs> wow we're not talking state prison system here we're talking about county jails um, and of course one of those is a work release center where they can keep you in jail while they allow you to go out and slave somewhere for money and they charge you you know I don't know, something like 16 bucks for a bologna sandwich is what I hear hmm. uh, for your daily meal that, you know, when you go off to work and then you pay your room and board in there. And by the time you get paid off everything that you've had paid off, you get out of jail and you're still broke, even though you've been working for this entire time. It's ridiculous. They, they do stupid things, you know, put people in jail for ridiculous things and take them away from their families. Uh, and then they complain about broken homes and not being able to get enough people to work in jobs. Sure. And I don't know the statistics specifically on, you know, Native Americans, but I'm sure it's the same. I'm sure it's just a human thing. But when you look at, you know, whites compared to blacks compared to Hispanics, the drug use is equal pretty much amongst all of us. It's virtually the exact same amongst all races. But arrests for all of those things are completely different. They're way lower for white people. So I'm sure it's the exact same for Native Americans. I'm sure it's just, it's just you know, misappropriation of justice, discrimination. Well, and then we have to, you know, carry this uh, identification card around that uh, says that we're a, a member of the, you know, <laughs> a tribe. And, it, you know, with our blood degree to make sure that uh, the government can track us. Hmm. I mean, yes, we can use that as a uh, an ID for uh, tr crossing across borders and stuff. It's almost like, uh, you know, like the uh, we can get on an airplane with it. It's a federal ID. So uh, we vote with it and everything. We have to prove blood quantum to get that hmm. particular ID. Uh, And uh, I don't know we, why we have, you know, we have to uh, prove our, our level of blood, you know, like a dog. That yeah. That seem fair to me. That's weird. Braxton's Native American as well. Did you have to do that, man? Yeah. Um, I'm Choctaw and same thing. Um, I'm 1 256th, 
which doesn't sound like a lot, but that's, you know, 10 times more than Elizabeth Warren. So <laughs> that's probably true. That makes perfect sense. Um, okay. Roy. So, so are you a veteran yourself? Yes. I served six years in the United States army. Um, I went to the war in Bosnia in 97 and 98. Do you see uh, Hillary Clinton while you were there? <laughs> kind of an interesting at- story there. Um, I, I was uh, the movement control guy. I, I was in charge of all traffic from Capispar, Hungary, down to Macedonia. So wow. my unit was going down there at that exact same time because Bob Dole was there, and our unit was from Kansas. Huh. Um, and so I, I had uh, we stopped all traffic, and nothing was moving at that time, but nothing real was moving at that time, I should say. Uh, we had a whole bunch of false movements, which I, I coordinated all of these different actions to happen. And then Secret Service picked one of these actual things, you know, and they brought they brought her in there. And so, yeah, there was none of that getting shot at stuff. And it was. But that wasn't even the worst part of being in at that time, because they muzzled us so much that we couldn't even crack a joke about Bill Clinton uh, lying about uh, getting serviced by Monica. <laughs> he not had sexual relations with that woman. And then it gets proven that he's lying. Yeah. So us as soldiers couldn't even talk about the fact that our commander-in-chief was lying through his teeth and taking the honor out of the uniform that we wore. Uh, was it just, uh, did you just have like a shitty commander or was it just <clears throat> a different military back then? What, Bill Clinton? No, no, no. I mean, you're uh, like your unit commander. That was that was the memo from the DOD. Wow. <laughs> that said anything bad, you know, about him. You may have sent out messages or whatever. We could not talk about it. It was totally taboo. I have an idea of where they can stick that memo for sure, but... We, I mean, that, that kind of culture, I mean, you know, of course you can't like show up in protests and stuff in uniform. And I had certain supervisors who would get more offended and discourage that kind of chatter. But I, I said a lot of things. I served during Obama's years and part of Trump's, but I never had anybody really, you know, threaten me with like UCMJ or anything like that. I never saw a memo saying you couldn't condemn or criticize the president. Well, it's a much different armor. You probably had a stress card too. <laughs> No, we did not have stress cards. I always hear about this, the stress card rumor. I don't know if that was ever a real thing or not, but I always hear about that. Yeah, I when I got out in 2001, uh, August 15th, uh, 2000. Wow. Uh, wow. I was still wearing that soft cap and not the beret. It was right when they were switching over to those and. Uh, hmm. it was for the 225th anniversary of the army. And before that, everything that was made for the U S military had to be made in country. But Bush wanted those out to us so fast that he opened it up so we could buy our military gear from China. And that's the only wow. way they could get us those berets fast enough. So I never had to wear one. I'd know because I don't, you know, I was in an army where that beret meant something. Yeah. Forces, you know, special ops. Yeah. (laughs) So does every soldier wear a beret now? I didn't realize that. I believe so. (laughs) Huh. But they have, they have kind of both, don't they? Oh, it's beret with dress uniform. I'm I'm not sure on the uniform regulation, but uh, to my knowledge, yeah, they're all berets. Maybe bootleg will hop in here and clear some stuff up. Uh, yeah, for real. I think it's Braxton, what Braxton oh, wore a beret. Air Force, but I think the I think all soldiers when they graduate they wear a black beret. Paratroopers are red, kind of the maroon. Rangers are tan. Uh, Special Forces is green. Hmm. But uh, everybody else in NATO at the time wore a beret, and I think they wanted us to fit in with everybody else. Hmm. Were you also in BDUs? Yeah. Um, okay. Over there in, during the war, though, we were in uh, the uh, polypropylene with the Gore-Tex. 
and the Mickey Mouse boots, but you pump air into them. <laughs> what? We were in the mountains. I missed okay. the desert on both ends. So uh, I came home from the army with this uh, with a lung disease uh, from coughing up this black stuff every day when because you sleep in these tents with you know kerosene heaters. But because of my security clearance, uh, I was alone in my tent. So I couldn't have like a fire guard at night and stuff like that. So I had to acquire a magic blanket, <laughs> uh, which was, we weren't allowed to have electric blankets, but uh, ah, I acquired one and, uh, well, I mean, I didn't want to freeze to death. And sure. And actually what happened is I did have a tent mate when I first got there. But uh, that's when they passed something called the Lautenberg Amendment. And because he had had a prior domestic violence, he could no longer have a firearm. So they uh, packed him up to send him home. And his wife wasn't there when he got home and he committed suicide. Oh, that's terrible. So what would they do? Would they just send somebody to a desk job if that was the case, or would they just get a they'd get a discharge? Uh, I don't know exactly how that went. All I know is you know they sent they were sending him home, and hmm. I imagine you obviously you can't reenlist at that time, too. If you got a, a like an OWI, you were not allowed to reenlist anymore. That, that was like they wouldn't put you out for a drunk driving, but you couldn't reenlist. And if okay. you didn't get so many college credits but during your term, then you couldn't reenlist. It was at a time, I guess, when it was harder to get into the military. <laughs> yeah, and it need you as bad because September 11th hadn't happened yet. Right. We, weren't, we weren't fighting an endless war, and we'll probably see very soon, hopefully, with no other wars happen, for God's sakes, we'll probably see that again. We'll probably see the military start to get a lot more selective about who they let in, I'm, I'm hoping. Well, they should. Um, and what really pissed me off was that an active duty soldier E4 and below with a family qualifies for welfare. And so a soldier who's off fighting for his country or her country and their family is back going to the store with a food card. um, When the money comes from the same place, why couldn't, you know, they couldn't pay them enough to make a living. When, when I was in Bosnia, uh, I, I went over there. I, I already had like five five years in, maybe hmm. four years, five years. I can't remember. Actually, it wasn't even that much. But with all of the combat pay and uh, tax exclusions and everything, I was pulling down two thousand dollars a month. So that you know seemed like decent money, but when you can actually break it down to that's seventy dollars a day. Sure. That my life was on the line at every second. Bosnia has more landmines than people. <laughs> wow. So, well, they're cheap. They cost about three to five bucks a piece for a landmine. You put them out there. They There was these landmine fields. They'd throw uh, toys out there so kids would run out there to get a stuffed animal and get blown up. Uh, hmm. Or a, a weapon, something desirable. This is the the kind of thing that we were facing over there. And then the ethnic cleansing that was going on uh, because they disarmed all of the people and took away their weapons. And then the police went around and killed people. The Serbian police came in and the people weren't able to fight back. You'd see someone eating dinner in their house and half their house is missing because they got hit with a mortar round. And our... Uh, rules of engagement were such that we weren't allowed to partake in the, in in any of this. If you saw them shooting and killing people, you couldn't shoot at them. You had to try to get yourself in between them and hope that they'd then shoot at you because then you could shoot back. Wow. But, of course, they're not going to shoot at you. So if you sure. get in between, they'll just drive off and find somebody else to go shoot. Wow. So we were fighting a war with our, our hands tied behind it. Well, I guess we weren't fighting. I, we yeah. were supposed to be the stabilization force that in another endless war, you know, but it wasn't our war. <laughs> we were just there trying to establish a pipeline, I think, uh, a hmm. supply line from Germany down to Kosovo. Yeah. Uh, 
and then because Kosovo, and that was just a jump over to Iran and Iraq. Makes sense. And how long were you there for? Nine months. Wow. It's a pretty long deployment to be in the mountains. I mean, that's, that's standard procedure nowadays, but that seems like a long time back then. Well, uh, I'm a movement control officer, and there's not a lot of people that do the job that I do. Yeah, I was going to ask, what is that? Is that like, that's not quartermaster, I'm assuming. Um, it's everything from, well, when I got to Bosnia, I took over three jobs uh, because of my security clearance level. Uh, I took three jobs that was well above my pay grade. I was, a, I was a PFC when I got there, um, and I became the customs agent for all of NATO. I did all of the customs paperwork from Capsabar, Hungary, all the way down to Macedonia. I hired commercial contractors to move military personnel and assets. Uh, and then uh, I ran the TC Actis system, the Transportation Coordinator Automated Command and Control Information Systems, which is uh, basically when... Uh, someone come in my office with we have this many uh, soldiers and this is the equipment we have and then i would take that and plug it into my computer and it would tell me based on what vehicles we had available how many of them we needed and exactly how to pack that truck huh so everything was in perfect balance and that it would fit under a bridge or you know, underneath, you know, if it was a tight squeeze or if we had to unpack a truck to get it across the bridge because of the weight ratings on them. This is all the things that we have to, we have to know. Um, and people don't understand that is part of the movement and uh, getting us into these tight spaces. You, you know, you've got a tank on a truck and the bridge won't hold both. So you got to Take your tank off the truck, drive the truck across, drive the tank across, get the tank back on the truck, and keep going. And there was only two bridges to get across from Capis or from uh, Croatia into Bosnia, just those two points. And so wow. we controlled that traffic there. So that sounds just actual... like Will's job, but on the ground instead of the air. Yeah, I was going to say that. Yeah, I was a logistician too. And I want to address this bootleg. A fancy pog is still a pog. Screw you. Oh, God. You can't even say pog, right? Oh, pog. Whatever. Exactly. Seriously. Air Force has uh, noners. We have noners. Exactly. <laughs> um, which I'm not. But so what was your actual MOS, Roy? Because the movement control officer, that was kind of something you picked up later on, right? 88 November. 88 November. Which what is that actually? What's like the title for it? Traffic management coordinator. Traffic management coordinator. Okay, we have something very similar to that in the Air Force for sure. Okay. The the Marines actually train with us at T school to do the same job we do. We train side by side, same classroom, to be a transportation officer. So. Okay. Um, control officer. Awesome. Yeah. No, I did. I definitely did the same thing you did, just on airplanes for sure. A lot of the same stuff. A lot of the doing the weights and, you know all the routes and making sure you had all the right clearances and all that kind of stuff. You are aware that the army has more planes than the air force, right? That's not, uh, true. that's not true at all. <laughs> more aircraft, more aircraft. Uh, yeah, because that, the air force has hardly any helicopters, but yeah, that's a common you misconception. <laughs> you don't need a helicopter when you have an A-10 Warthog or a Thunderbolt. Those a lot are, better. They just end up in Taliban hands anyways. Launch pad is what they call that. It's not a helicopter. It's a mobile weapons launch pad. <laughs> that's cool honestly my dream when i was a little kid was to fly an ah-64 i would have loved to i'm colorblind though so those dreams definitely died but i respect what the army does for sure and i and wanted to be a dope on a rope dope on a rope what's that air assault air assault that would have been cool man okay i wanted to yeah repel a lot of helicopters <laughs> we had a friend who went to air assault school right didn't didn't uh one of the guys Daggett? in our BMT flight? No, not oh, Daggett. Um, uh, in our BMT? Yeah, probably for the TACP pipeline, yeah. yeah I mean, Daggett a... did, but yeah, you, we were talking about someone different. Yeah, I yeah, I think Supan did. Okay, huh, thought so. But uh, okay, so when did you actually get out? So did you, you did the deployment in Bosnia, and then what made you decide to, to stop? What made you decide to get out of the military? Well, I got hurt. 
Um, and that was part of it, uh, my back. And I couldn't do sit-ups anymore, so I, I couldn't pass my, my PT test. Um, and kept going through that and, and uh, try to rehabilitate. And I, I, I couldn't, I just couldn't do it. I was in so much pain all the time. Uh, I, I was drinking so much from the, the PTSD from the war, the, uh, the pain. And then uh, my grandfather died. And so uh, I, w I was just spiraling and things weren't going good for me. And I was stationed in Texas and cannabis was readily available and cheap. <laughs> and hell yeah. At a hundred percent urinalysis where I had gotten moved to CQ duty because the first sergeant wasn't worried about me. Um, I had never been in trouble in my six years and I've never once had an article 15. I was the model soldier. I got a meritorious service medal because I rewrote the standard operating procedures for my job that they adopted army wide at the time, sent me to Italy to train other soldiers, how to do it. Um, how we, uh, moved, uh, assets in country, uh, because we were wasting a lot of money and, uh, stress on soldiers and probably lives in, you know, uh, certain situations. We didn't in, in my tenure, we didn't have any loss of lives, but, because uh, we weren't real combat soldiers at the time. We were, like I said, support mission, basically. Hmm. Um, so then when I got there, too, at Fort Hood, uh, I was working with satellite communication systems. We were testing out GPS uh, and tracking uh, movement control on the road. When a truck on the road would have a, we'd know what was on it, uh, which called a positive inbound clearance when it would pass a checkpoint on the thing with a little sensor on top of it would tell us exactly what units it was going to. So if they were big pieces, we could get a hold of them. They come over with their trucks and we could pick it right off the trucks and onto their little ones. And we'd have exactly the equipment we needed. No, no downtime. It made everything happen so much faster. Um, and so also uh, hazardous materials out on the highway, you know, you, we track these things. Uh, so if a truckload of a chemical that was used to say, make explosives all of a sudden goes off, stops communicating, uh, we can track them down, find out why they went off grid. Um, if the truck's been hijacked, uh, before you have another, um, Oklahoma City happened. Sure. Uh, plus, we needed to know at uh, choke points. Uh, Round Rock, Texas was one of those choke points where you couldn't have too many trucks with certain things going past at the, the same time in case there was an accident that could cause a chain reaction. So you don't have those kind of vehicles lined up one behind another. You have to stagger them out over a period of time and then control their speed and make sure that everybody is safe. Huh. Okay. So let's talk about your actual campaign. Cause we're getting, we're actually 30 minutes in already. It's going by really fast, but, uh, so let's talk about you're running for Wisconsin state assembly district six. And I'm assuming we don't have a state assembly here. I'm assuming is that like the equivalent to a house pretty much? Yes. Okay. We have so a, tell us about an assembly. Senate and then assembly. Okay. How big is your assembly? Do you know? 99. 99. Okay. And is your Senate a hundred? 33. On, 33 depends on your counties. Okay. Um, so tell us why you're running, what your platform is, what you want to do differently. Well, after coming home from the, the war, like I said, with the lung illness, uh, I was up here in Wisconsin and I was working on a farm and we had a silo gas incident at the farm, which fried my lungs even, even further. I, I was down to 27% lung function and I, I really wasn't doing good. The doctors said that if I didn't do something drastic uh, and change my situations, that I had about 18 months to live. Now I'm a single parent and that wasn't going to work for me. Hmm. So, 
I start going to see all these specialists. Uh, and once you start going to the doctors, they find all these little things and they send you to more specialists. And so I started getting treatment for uh, rheumatoid arthritis at the same time. And the medicine for the rheumatoid arthritis gave me seizures. They put me on anti-seizure medicines and I just was not getting any better. And one of my doctors suggested that I try cannabis therapy. Now it's not legal here in Wisconsin. And so I had to travel up to Michigan and I started studying and finding out that the way that I had been using cannabis was good for my PTSD. It made me not want to hurt people. Um, and it helped me to stop drinking. Um, it helped me to give up cigarettes. So I was already that far into it. But then when I learned how to use it for my other things, uh, I had been on 13 different medicines, pharmaceuticals. And so the cannabis, after a year, I was completely off all of those um, and getting better. And I'm up to 53% lung function. The doctors considered me to be stable. Um, and it's been now five, six years. So I did way better with the cannabis than I did with the pharmaceuticals. So I've been going for years and begging my state senator and state assemblyman and uh, congressmen and senators for help. Um, because as a disabled veteran, the medicine that I need to make me better is 100% legal, 72 miles down the road, but I can't get it here. And so I kept asking and begging and they weren't listening uh, because here in Wisconsin, there we're like an island in the middle of this <laughs> and we're stuck in the past. They, they don't want to get on board with it. I don't know if it's the prison complex here that has such a hold in it or if it's the pharmaceuticals, but somebody is paying our politicians down there to maintain the status quo. Um, so when I realized that my state senator uh, has been in office since 1988 and is running completely unopposed at all, nobody put their hat in the ring. And so I started looking into it and found out that to run for state senator, I only needed 400 signatures. And I was out talking to people and I went and someone who was running for Congress came to our reservation. And I spoke at the event, uh, told my story to this uh, woman, and I got my picture taken and got in the paper. Well, five weeks later, uh, the police kicked in my door with a SWAT team. Apparently, they pulled a receipt out of my trash. And wow. They claimed that there was an anonymous tip. And so now, because I live in a school zone, they've added all of the, you know, these these felonies um and it's just a big mess and instead of backing off because i wouldn't be much that kind of ended that particular run so now this cycle uh the senator isn't up but the assemblyman is and he's retiring so the spot is being vacated and i threw my hat out there said if they're not going to do it i'm going to do it myself that somebody has to stand up for not only veterans rights, but all of the sick people, because it's a medical science has shown that there's plenty of good things that come from cannabis when it's used properly. I went to school. I have six certificates currently in cannabis, including medical applications of cannabis and uh, cannabis patient care. Uh, I paid for an entire master's program of 10 certificates. So in the end, I will have more knowledge than I have now. And I'm just trying to get them to come to some common sense solutions to the problems that we have. And what I see is everybody wants to write a new big bill. And every time you make a law, it creates a minority and excludes them. 
Hmm. And what I would like to see would be less laws to remove cannabis from the schedule because it does not belong there. Uh, the National Institute of Drug Abuse ranks cannabis just below caffeine in danger level. Um, so we just need to keep moving the ball forward. But the problem we have here in the Wisconsin legislature is they won't cross the aisles to help each other. The Republicans have uh, Assembly Bill 130, uh, Senate Bill 164 for the decriminalization of, of cannabis, uh, 10 grams or less, a simple fine, uh, uh, non-stackable, meaning that it doesn't progress to a felony and the fine doesn't go up. Um, but also, the Republicans have a Assembly Bill 440, which is a butane hash oil bill where it's a modifier where they want to add three-year prison sentence for three grams of hash oil. Good gosh. Um, and the Democrats have a bill to fully legalize cannabis and tax it and all the social equity and stuff that goes with that. And neither one has enough to get the bill across because they don't want to give the other side a win. So one side is willing to, well, basically both sides are willing to continue putting sick people in jail for a victimless crime because it generates revenue with asset forfeitures. And I mean, my case has already been going on for over a year and a half. And my trial isn't even scheduled for another nine months down the road. And in the meantime of all of that, they have this on my thing, you know, pending felonies. So everybody's worried about they can't get workers to come to work right now. And I can't get a job because of a crime that I haven't even been convicted of. Because they want to leverage you and hold you for ransom to plead guilty to a lesser charge. And being as I've never been in trouble in my life, I refuse to plead guilty and make myself a felon because then I can't run for office. Again, they're just trying to muzzle me. And I'm a little league coach and I would never be able to coach again. And that's not acceptable to me either because I love coaching. It's something, you know, <laughs> I'm going to do. I'm, and uh, so I, I have to stand up for the rights of people who are afraid. Because if you speak out in cannabis, then you get targeted. And some places in Wisconsin, you know, it is legalized out uh, or decriminalized to the point of, you know, a dollar fine, $10 fine. But not my county. My county is still a hardcore Hangham County. Um, so with that, I believe, you know, personal responsibility. Everybody wants to demonize cannabis because of the actions of a few, just like they do with uh, guns and violence. Mm -hmm. They want to take one person who is doing something bad and try to blame everybody for it. And they want, uh, you can't put everybody in the same box. Individual accountability has to be in the forefront of everything we do. Each individual person is responsible for themselves. That's right. Uh, and that trickles out to the law enforcement as well. In Wisconsin here, they started tracking stats five years ago. Uh, and in five years, 1,000 officers have been fired from police departments in Wisconsin. And only two of those have lost their certification and they are serving jail time. But the other 998 are still available to be hired by other police departments. And a lot of those, they, they uh, resigned to get out of an investigation or they signed a, an agreement to keep their stuff secret. So when they get passed off to a different police department without them knowing what happened and why, and that is 200 of those thousand are currently working again for other police departments because they can hire that person because they haven't lost their certification and they can go to work tomorrow. Where if you hire a new person who has to go to training, that school lasts five months and they're on your payroll and not on your force patrolling. 
So that gives an in for some questionable officers. Uh, and I'm, I'm certain that the good officers would like to get rid of the bad officers. What's like, up, what's buddy? Up, buddy? <laughs> uh, that's Dabby. Dabby. Um, that's what's that's up. I got my cat here, too. We'll just have an animal party. But, Roy, <laughs> are you very involved in your state's LP? Um, I go to all of the meetings that I can get myself to. We don't have a lot of them, it seems like. The summer here with the fairs and things going on. So I just, I go out and I speak at every event that I can get myself at. I, I spoke at the Erase the Stigma event in uh, Michigan. Um, it was the first annual, so hopefully we'll have a chance to do that again next year. Because that that is what we're trying to do is erase the stigma around cannabis so it's acceptable. When so many people are in jail for nonviolent drug offenses, when they need people to come work jobs. And part of the problem with getting these people these jobs, and especially in cannabis, is that they can't pass a year analysis. Cannabis stays in your system a real long time. It's an yeah. easy one to pick out. The other drugs like methamphetamines, heroin, cocaine, it's out of your system in like 72 hours. Um, so the actual bad drugs, those people can get jobs. They just can't keep them. Um, so is anybody in Wisconsin working on like an initiative to get like, a, you know, petitioning right now to get cannabis legalized? There are bills on that have been submitted. It's, they never make it out of committee. Well, what about like an initiative? Like do you guys have a process in place to just gather enough signatures and get something put on a state ballot without the, without the assembly or the Senate? Wisconsin does not, we can do a, an advisory, but there's no binding resolutions for the state of Wisconsin, much like Texas. God bless you, man. That sucks. It has to come through the legislature. Mm. And so that's why I became a specialist in the field. And I, every day I learn more and more because they need an expert down there to show them the truth and that it isn't harmful, that we've been lied to for many years and the policies are racist in their nature. Um, it was designed to break up anti-government groups, to target people whose political uh, aspirations didn't align with Richard Nixon. Yep. So, we want everybody to be able to vote, make it easier to get to the elections and be better informed. Uh, the media doesn't always tell an accurate story, especially coming from a third party. They don't talk about us at all. They don't let us on debate stages. It's like right. we don't exist. So we have to get our name out there as much as we can. and. You see a lot of them going to extremes uh, and the statement candidates, the Vernon, Vernon Supremes, uh, which I got asked, well, aren't you guys like a joke party? Like, no, we are some very serious candidates in this party. Any party has extremes on both ends. And Tell you them can't, the other two parties are the other parties. parties. <laughs> you, can't, you can't judge everybody by a few. We all have a, a desire to make this country better for everyone. That's right. So Braxton, do you have anything else to ask Roy? We're kind of running out of time here. Any questions you got? Um, no, I don't think any questions, man. Thank you a lot for your service. Um, I think you're going to make a great governor of Michigan and I hope lots of people turn out to vote for you. <laughs> maybe I can be governor there. <laughs> Just run up your options in Wisconsin first. Yeah. But uh, Roy, go ahead. Give us all the plugs you've got. Um, right now, I'm still trying to get my social media up and going. I have the uh, Mohican Libertarian at gmail.com, and eventually I will have a PayPal associated to that uh, so we can get some information out there. Uh, Sounds like you need <laughs> some volunteers. So that's what, if anybody in Wisconsin or anybody in the movement period wants to volunteer for Roy's campaign, please reach out to him, mohicanlibertarian at gmail.com. we got to get out there and knock some doors. 
Hell yeah. Me and Daddy. All right, and how about a, a clubhouse after party? Chris was asking, are we going to be there? I will definitely be on clubhouse. All right, guys. So get on LP Talk Radio to join us after the show for a little clubhouse chat. Uh, Braxton, are you going to be there? Um, Can you download Clubhouse on a computer? <laughs> no, this guy. I don't oh, know, honestly. Not. Maybe you can. I'll look into it. All right, guys. Well, that's all we got, Roy. Thank you for being here, man. Thank you for your service. And uh, thanks for being part of this movement and running as a candidate. That's huge. And uh, we're here to support you any way we can. So let us know what else you need. Thank you for having me. And anytime, I'm more willing to come and talk. That's what I love to do. Hell yeah, man. All right. Well, have a great night. We'll see you on Clubhouse. Bye. All right, brother. Anything else you need to plug? Um, obviously, the Libertarian Party Veterans Caucus. Um, man, shout out to the chair of the Oklahoma Libertarian Party, both Avenue. Straight uh, up. Ch- 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 who else are we shouting out? We shout out everybody of the OKLP. Shout out to Natalie Bruno, gubernatorial candidate for Oklahoma. Go to lakenataliebruno.com. Uh, please follow the OKLP if you don't. Oklahoma Libertarian Party. Um, that's all I got. Joe Exotic's innocent. <laughs> Joe Exotic is innocent. All right, guys. That's all we've got for you tonight. We will see you on Clubhouse after this, and we will see you tomorrow night with me and Bootleg Libertarian on Not a Real Libertarian at 6 p.m. Central. 7 p.m. Eastern Time. Be there. Take care. Bye. Welcome to episode 5 of the 